Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and Realnurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to the Lockbox Podcast. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm here with Ron Halliday. Ron, how you doing? Doing great, Jeffrey. How are you today? Fantastic. Thank you. Why don't you tell our listeners who you are and where you're from? Well, as you mentioned, my name is Ron Halliday. I live in Minneapolis, and we're busy investing in real estate. Very good. Very good. And it appears that you have a background in, in different industries and a focus on Six Sigma. And you know, you've now brought that into the commercial real estate space. So why don't you tell your story of how you got into real estate? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I spent 20 years as a continuous improvement professional, what they call a lean Six Sigma black belt. So my job was really helping industries make their processes, you know, better, faster, cheaper. So I worked for a number of different companies and in many industries, really started out in the foundry and machining industry. And I took head jobs with information services, um, all sorts of manufacturing, worked for MoneyGram International for a while, pure business, you know, uh, IT type processes, worked for a food service company that made donut icings and that sort of thing. Did some consulting, you know, all over the Midwest and actually down as far as Mexico for different businesses. So it's very interesting. I enjoyed doing it, but uh, uh, actually kind of the, the real estate came in. My, my wife was a nurse mm-hmm. and she retired about, oh, five, six years ago now. And when, when she retired, she decided she wanted to do something different. So she went and got a real estate license. And so we got interested in real estate. She drugged me to all these meetings and, you know, boot camps and everything. And we ran across fortune builders. So we kind of joined up with them and got sort of an intensive education in real estate. So then we started buying small multifamily. So we have some duplexes and some triplexes, Uh, bought a number of single family homes. We sold some contract for deed, done a couple of flips. Uh, Then we decided that the um, smaller properties, there just wasn't enough bang for the buck. It just seemed like there was a lot of work for the amount of return. So we decided to go into into commercial real estate, something bigger. So we started out looking at multifamily and I met my partner, Dave Peters, and he was big into multifamily. And so we were looking at that, you know, very intensely. I liked it, but uh, the deals just weren't there. You know, the cap rates have gotten so compressed, it just didn't seem like there was a lot of value there. So we we actually stumbled upon uh, hotels. And okay. so now we're investing in hotels. The big advantage of hotels, of course, is there's multiple exit strategies. There's, you know, a struggling hotel on every street corner and we can buy them relatively cheaply and then turn around and reposition them in the marketplace. And you have multiple options. I mean, we can run it as a traditional hotel, Uh, We can run it as what we call hybrid housing. So you run part of it as a traditional hotel, part of it as weekly and monthly stays, or we can convert it to micro apartments and, you know, aimed at like senior housing or, you know, workforce housing, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of money to be made. So (laughs) awesome. So with the hotels, how are you sourcing your deals? Well, actually, we work with a number of different brokers. Actually, we found a few of them just on LoopNet. 
Uh, and then once we started inquiring, all of a sudden the brokers started sending us deals. So we've got one hotel we own and, and are operating now. We've got one more under contract. We've got two signed LOIs and about five more we're negotiating on. So Awesome. And so you have broker network that developed pretty much organically, it seems. Once you got into this space, now brokers are sending you the deals. So you didn't really have to focus on that too much. So you guys are equity, right? Your capital. Well, we raise the capital. I okay. mean, we obviously have some capital of our own, but we're syndicating the deals and then, you know, raising money. You've been, so far we've been using local banks and SBA, you know, for the main part of the funding and then raising the capital for the down payment, any needed repairs, you know, operating expenses, that sort of thing. Got it. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, you don't even have to raise the capital or really take very much risk. You know, you're having the deals found for you and then you're helping them source that capital once the deal is there. And, and who is running the hotels? Actually, we are. That's okay. the most interesting part. Got it. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. So I was like, okay, now that do they have a third party management company for that portion? Like, how is this structured? That's pretty interesting. And one of my associates had brought up the idea of renovating hotels and transferring them into multifamily, either apartments, condos. And I said, sounds like a great idea, but you have zero experience doing that. And it's kind of an unproven model, but here you are. And you know, you're somebody who is pioneering that and is doing it, uh, you know, in and out every day. So with that being said, you have your first one under contract, some LOIs, some other things. So are you solely focusing on hotels? Is that your number one and only thing that you're doing? You know, I'd say that's the main part of our focus right now. Again, mm -hmm. since we're managing them, you know, taking each one on and then, you know, getting the staff lined up. Well, obviously you buy the hotel, it comes with staff. So you have to first vet the current staff and figure out if you have the right people or in, are the right people in the right seats and, you know, what's working well with the property and what isn't. And so it takes some time and some effort on our part to get each one really optimized. So we're, we don't want to get too far afield. We have looked at some other deals. I mean, some pure conversions where they, you know, like, we, we just got a deal the other day to look at. It's a hotel that was actually damaged in a hurricane and it's somebody bought it and then stripped it down to the studs and it's just sort of sitting there. So we're kind of looking at that to see, you know, would it make any sense to buy that? And that we would probably convert to, to a multifamily of some sort. But then you just have to get into what's the cost of conversion and can it support itself, you know, the debt service, et cetera, once you figure out what you have to pay to buy it and then pay to renovate it. And then the holding costs, you know, once you rent it out, since these are micro apartments, you're not, not getting, you know, large rents. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of it. It's sort of affordable housing, but with any affordable housing project, you know, it still has to be able to pay its own way. You know, right. the big plus would be at the end when you sell it out, you know, if you buy it cheap and then can sell it with a six cap, you know, there, there's significant capital there but you don't want to be dumping money into it every month in between. Absolutely. So is cap rate the only measuring stick or are you looking at those other exit strategies when it comes to hotels and using that to hedge your bets? Well, actually we're planning on operating them. So we're buying right. them so that if we can maintain, you know, a 50 or 60% occupancy mm -hmm. with our mixed model, it'll make money. And Got it. we're hoping, be able to drive the occupancy above that. 
Uh, the biggest thing we see in the hotel space is people just do a horrible job of marketing. Right. You know, most of these hotels are branded and the brands don't advertise your hotel. They advertise the brand. And some people are brand sensitive and they have their little reward points or whatever. And they're, you know, specific to a brand, but those people are few and far between in my experience. You know, most people who are coming into town. If you're just going to stay for a few nights, you want a comfortable bed, you know, free breakfast and, you know, it's clean and it's safe. That's all people want. And if it's, you know, $10 cheaper than the Hilton, then that's generally what they're going to go for. Now, right. with our extended yeah. stay market, that's really more, you know, the traveling nurses, the contractors are in town for four or five weeks to do a job, you know, people in transition, they're new to town, maybe they bought a house that isn't quite ready to move into, you got to stay someplace for six weeks or eight weeks. I mean, kind of if you think about it, if you want to go someplace for seven days, a traditional hotel is kind of the perfect option. If you are going someplace, you're going to stay there six months or more, you can start looking at an apartment lease. But if you're in that gap between seven days and 180 days, what do you do? Well, you know, the traditional like extended stay America, that kind of stuff, they certainly exist, but they're really expensive, you know, $2,000 a month to stay in a place like that. Right. If we can put our hotel out there and have extended stay rates that come in, you know, five or $600 less than the extended stay hotels, then we think there's a significant market. It certainly worked on the hotel we have now. And it really goes down a lot, as I said, to marketing. So a lot of internet marketing and just letting people know it's out there. Well, now you're speaking my language. Who's doing your internet marketing for you? Do you have a, a firm that you work with? Uh, there is a firm here in town we've been working with, but we're cool. using a lot of Google AdWords and you know uh, Facebook type marketing, that sort of thing. Again, I'm not the marketing genius. Uh, my partner does kind of handles that side of it, but I know that we're doing a lot of it. And it ain't awesome. cheap, but, but it's working. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, if, if it's filling and you're at that 60% plus occupancy or, or at least getting there on, the, on your timeline, then it's doing its job, right? Yeah. Well, the one we have now is actually full. It's 100% full. Well, there you go. So when you're looking at these deals, because this is such a new space, I, I find it hard to value. You're looking at buy and hold older hotels that you can get a deal on. And the way that you look at the break even is what rent can we charge or roommates can be charged at 60% occupancy and that's your overall measuring stick. Is that right? Pretty, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. I mean, we'll look at a property and say, okay, what is it going to cost to buy it? What, what does the owner want for it? Then since we're looking at older hotels and a lot of hotels were struggling before COVID, yeah, and now they're just obviously crushed. They did worse after COVID and so right. they've been losing money for some period of time. And as with any business, if they're not making money, what tends to get sacrificed first is maintenance. And so there's deferred maintenance. And so yep. what is it going to cost to bring it up to, to snuff so that we can have a, you know, a really good product we can bring to the marketplace? So if we're going to buy it for, I'll just throw out some arbitrary numbers, say you're going to pay two and a half or three million to buy it, and you have to put a million into bringing it up to, to where you want it to be. Then you, you got four million in the deal. You have to go back and yeah. look and say, okay, what's the average rates for a three car star hotel in that area? That's the most you can get on your nightly rate. And then right. you can, and you know, ratchet it down a little bit there for the weekly and monthly and see where it goes and see how long and, it's and gonna that's take to recoup. Yep. 
And, and then it yeah. goes to the, to the city too, because most cities have zoning, as, as I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> and in some places, hotels have a different zoning than multifamily. And so if, if it's zoned for mm. hotels right now, the city may or may not be amenable to changing it to multifamily. And, yeah. Or they may want multifamily. It just depends on what their need is. And so we, we look at that side of the equation too. You know, what does the city want? What does the community need? You know, where is the, you know, highest and best use for this particular property? And then- Well, there you go. Do that. Highest and best use. So as a real estate agent myself and a marketer, talking about going to the city and trying to rezone something is like my worst nightmare. Like I want to stay so far away from that. <laughs> I don't even want to be a part of that. That's my view. That's going to take months. It's probably not even going to go through. Uh, let's just do something else with it. But you're going that extra mile. And in certain cases, you're you're prepared, if I'm understanding you correctly, to go have a hotel rezoned as multifamily and then you know go through that process and then also fix it up and keep it, which is interesting. I'm curious if as this idea develops and more people get into the market, if there will be a flip, kind of like a six, 12 month multifamily flip type of mindset where someone comes in, they buy something that is, you know, like you said, in disrepair, they do their repairs and they raise the rent or the room rates. And then six months later, 12 months later, they sell it for a 13x multiplier on room rates that have been raised, right? And then they can profit X in six months and the money is turning really fast. I know a lot of multifamily guys that do that, but because sure. this hotel thing is so new, it's not like you have all these buyers out there waiting to purchase these freshly refurbished hotels. Yeah. So do you foresee that in the future? You know, it certainly could happen. I think the issue right now really is that a hotel is much more of a business than it is a real estate investment per se. Because multifamily, pure multifamily, traditional multifamily is a real estate investment, right? You invest right. money in the property. Um, most multifamily deals, they have outside management that they pay. You know, it's really not terribly hands-on after you get past the, you know, the due diligence, the closing, the you know, rent it up, get it going, and then just let it really run. So I think people understand that. And so there's many buyers out there that want to take that on. They're willing to make the investment. I don't think there's too many people right now that want to take on managing a hotel. Right. And we haven't found any good third-party people who could manage it the way we want to manage it, right? This is kind of a new business model. And so we there just isn't the competition out there right now Will there be in the future? I think there will, because, you know, hotels are really struggling right now. There's, you know, hotels going out of business every which way. And with all the, you know, PPP money and all that stuff that's extended people, you know, longer than they would have made it otherwise, we haven't really seen the, the crest of the foreclosures and the issues coming up yet. But I think we're running to the end of that. And pretty yep. soon there's going to be a lot more hotels on the market. I mean, they were just overbuilt and there just isn't the demand to support them and even without COVID. And then you had COVID on top of it. It's just a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Obviously, you know, everyone's looking at the future with their version of a crystal ball. And I appreciate that future glance. I think that's really spot on and it's based on data, which is is a lot more accurate than some people just going off of a feeling. So yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about 
the Six Sigma approach that you've been able to bring into a commercial real estate firm. My listeners are top 1% real estate and then mortgage brokers. So Mm -hmm. the Six Sigma formula, format, concept, you know, you're a Six Sigma black belt. It's heavy in lean, right? Being as lean as possible, creating if I understand correctly, I'm going to let you talk here in a second, but uh, creating, yeah, pull, creating pull at the end of the supply chain so that you're not just like trying to push products that aren't being bought. Like it, there's, there's a lot in that goes in that. And I'm really curious, you know, what insights you brought to a commercial real estate team that you've been able to then stay super lean, be running on, you know, data and analytics and just really making smart moves from day one. You know, can you elaborate on that? Sure, I can try. A little bit of history. Six Sigma really came out of Motorola in the 80s. And it's very much data-driven, statistically driven. So it's very much about the math. So I wasn't totally wrong. No, no, you you were right. Yeah, you were right. (laughs) But what they were looking at, they were running a silicone foundry. So basically, they were making ICs. And in the 80s, when you made ICs, you know, you start with a big wafer chip, you put it in this machine and you deposit all kinds of ions on it and you do all this stuff and there's all these things happening. You get all done and then you take that chip and bust it up into the individual ICs. And what they were finding is that one run, they'd have 90% good ICs and the next one, they'd only have 70% good ICs. Hmm. And the difference in value was, you know, a million dollars. Right. They're very expensive in the 80s. <laughs> right. So they started looking at what are the inputs to the process that actually determine the output. Obviously, Mm. a lot of inputs are going in. Some of them really make a difference and some don't make that much difference. And so they started doing statistical analysis and what's called design of experiments and things to figure out what inputs control the output so they could get what they wanted. And that became sort of a school of continuous improvement. Now, lean manufacturing really came out of Japan and out of, you know, a whole different mindset. You know, after the Second World War, you know, the Japanese really didn't have much of anything. I mean, they'd been bombed out and their industry was in a shambles, et cetera. And our government decided we should go in and help them rebuild what was called the Marshall Plan. And with the idea that if we could take Germany and Japan and make them contributing members of the international community, we wouldn't have to have World War III, okay? And so that's kind of what we did. We went in there, we helped them build up their industries, et cetera. And Dr. Deming and Dr. Duran, some continuous improvement experts of the time, you know, went over there and helped them. And really what they were doing was building strong processes but the Japanese had very little to work with, right? So they really had to learn how to do as much as possible with as little as possible. So it was very much creativity before capital. And so mm. they kept working on their manufacturing processes and they got very lean. You know, they, got, they were very lean in their supply chain. You know, they didn't keep a lot of material on hand. But when they first started doing it, they did it because they were poor, not because they were smart. Well, and then once they the figured out how cool that was and how... Yeah, it's and so they became famous for that, for running their supply chain very lean. And, and, and if you think about it, it's really a good thing. You don't want to have a lot of material sitting around, you know, because anytime you have material sitting around, you have to store it, you have to inventory it, you have to move it from point A to point B. You got it's, money tied up in it. Some of yeah, it gets obsolete. Exactly. The money tied up is the biggest thing. And yeah. I think I look at that in real estate as like 
standing listings, right? Like you have listing contract and like you have potential commissions waiting to be captured and they're just sitting there. That's right. Now in today's in today's market, <laughs> listings are going like quicker, yeah. Like now you yeah, have to find 10, the listings. Yeah, exactly. They're going 50k, 80k over asking in days. Yeah. Okay. So now you want to circle it back to real estate. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry. You get me started on the soapbox and God only knows what's no, going to happen. No, it's, I think that was a great explanation. Now everyone is, you know, understanding of Six Sigma Lean and that they're different, but they all kind of serve the same purpose that you are now offering this commercial real estate brokers you've absolutely. joined or, or partnered with. Right. Yep. And absolutely. And, we, and kind of what's happened in recent years is become Lean Six Sigma. So they kind of do in tools from okay. both the statistical tools from Six Sigma, the lean tools from Lean, the, you know, eliminating waste, which is what it's all about. But anyway, Bringing it back to real estate, where it really fits in, is building those strong bulletproof processes. So what we found in, in manufacturing is that if you perfect the process, you'll always get the right outcome. Whereas if you mm -hmm. focus on the product, what happens is each product becomes a science experiment. And so it's kind of the opposite of the old way of thinking, where we would say, you know, uh, we don't care how you do it, just get the job done. Well, now it's really all about how did you do it? What was the process? And if you follow the right process, then you'll always get the right outcome. And so really around real estate, it really has to do with figuring out what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, what process are you working on? And then, you know, brainstorming with the subject matter experts to figure out what's the best process. I mean, between us, how can we come up with the best process? Then we document it and we train everybody and make sure everybody's doing it exactly the same way. You know, whether it's a sales call or whether it's entering information into the database or, you know, running active campaign, whatever, we want everybody doing it exactly the same way. And I think that's where the Lean and Six Sigma really feeds into real estate. Interesting. So all the scripts, all the standard operating procedures, you know, all the different systems that have developed around different brokerages, those are examples of the different processes. And then not focusing on the outcome of, you know, the cost per lead or days on market or those things, but focusing on more of the how, right? Like, okay, how did this happen? I like that approach where you take the focus off of the results you take the focus more on the action and also then what string of actions and in what sequence and, you know, in, in exactly what way so that you can create that consistency. Because at the end of the day, customer service is consistency right? Having a consistent experience, whether they're talking to the head broker, whether they're talking to the assistant, whether they're talking to, right? Like Ritz Carlton, you'd have a five-star consistent experience every single time you set foot on Ritz Carlton real estate. And so right. that comes from all of these stringent procedures that are in place to have it be a consistent experience. So that makes sense. And I think that's that's going to be interesting to our listeners, you know, just taking a step back and looking at those different processes that are in place. You know, if you have someone on your team that particularly does one thing really well, but then, you know, other members that have that same role might not do it as well as that person, maybe it might, it would be a good idea to ask them to review their process, right? And then Absolutely. maybe make a, a standard operating procedure around that and train on that. Because if one of your yeah, agents right. has money on the phone and everyone else is really struggling, well, that's going to affect everything. That's going to affect the bottom line, right? It's, it's going to... Uh, produce less revenue per agent. So I think that's a really interesting approach, especially to real estate in the modern world when a lot of brokerages are trying to scale. Absolutely. Well, that's an excellent observation. I mean, what we used to do in industry is, is say you're talking about welding. So you go into the welding department and you pool all the people and kind of figure out 
who are the best performers in the welding department? And, you know, there everybody can tell you, or you can look at the, the production, whatever. And you sit down and talk to the, the best welders and say, well, how do you do it? What is your process? And you sort of map out the process. And then if you have two or three experts, you know, they can each talk about their process. It's probably slightly different. Work together and figure out, well, what's the, the best process? Right. Then document it, train everybody to do it the same way. And now everybody's performing at the level or very close to the level of your better performers, whereas before they were lagging because they were following a different process and it wasn't as good. Right. So you mentioned active campaign, and that might just be just one software that came to mind, but do you have a standard operating procedure software that you use? Something you know, to document we these? Don't per se. I mean, what what I've always used is Visio. So do what we call okay. a process map. And so basically it's just little boxes with each each step yeah. and an arrow to the next step. And if there's a decision, you know, you put the decision in here. If it's this, you go here, and if it's that, you go over there, and you know, just yeah. document them out that way. And then to map the process and then go back to either your Word documents or whatever and actually, you know, write out the instructions, you know, what we call it. You know, and then, of course, screenshots, if it has to do with the computer, often we use, you know, just pictures and things, you know, do this, you know, click this button, put this box over here, put that piece of information there, you know, like that sort of thing. Right, right. Okay. That makes sense. And I use, um, it's like draw.io or something like that. It's a Google, I'm in the Google suite of products for my business. So I use Drive and then it's a Google Drive edition, but it's totally free, but you just have to download the little Chrome plugin. And then you can do exactly what you're describing. Boxes, arrows, like I have a customer service SOP flowchart and my customer service you know, representative can then go through it. And if a question comes up, boom, here's the answer. If it's something new, they can ask me and then add it to it, right? So it has over time increased customer service to the end user and taken my time from doing that off the table. So that's a win-win. Yeah, so you kind uh, of got a combination of the process map and like a decision tree kind of thing. That's, that's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's really interesting that, you know, it's in line with what, what you're describing. And really, I think the biggest takeaway was focusing on the how and being open to that collective feedback and that masterminding of like, okay, this person, everyone agrees this person is great at this, right? Yes, you know, and then buy everybody into it and then like, do a little case study on them. And I think that's a really good process. And, you know, what if brokers out there were to do this on different areas of their business? And if their goal was to double top line revenue, right? They want to go from 100 million in, in transactions to 200 million in 12 months. Mm -hmm. Well, instead of looking at, at that one number and trying to double it, what if they increased their conversion rate by a half percent and they increased that conversion rate from you know, lead to an appointment by, you know, 10% and then da, 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 so that overall their conversion rate for online leads went from 1% to 1.5%. And then they just looked at these little aspects of their business that they could start to turn up the dial 5%, 10% here and there. And the compound effect of all of those better processes that are happening consistently, they're much more likely to then get to that doubled income number. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important when you're setting up your metrics, you want action-based metrics. So, so it's not how many deals did you close, it's, you know, how many leads did you, or how many phone calls did you make today, or how many, you know, uh, I'm so deals you did you up. evaluate? You know, with, yeah, you know. no, so 
This podcast, it's called Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. Action. And We're all about action. That's right. And the reason I named it that is because of my personal sales background and personal development background, which focused on exactly that, the leading indicators. You don't want to focus on lag indicators, which are commissions, transactions, right? That's all. It sounds nice, looks nice. It's awesome to talk about. But at the end of the day, if you focus on that, you don't have any type of roadmap or dial to crank up to get there. And so if you instead say, well, it takes me uh, 100 online leads to get 10 appointments. And when I then go on those 10 appointments, I end up getting, you know, whatever it is, 50%, say. 50% of them get neither a buyer broker agreement or listing agreement with me. And then of those, 80% close. Now you have some numbers you can tweak, right? Now you have, exactly. if appointments are your KPI, cool. Now you focus on how many appointments do I need to get to X in a total volume. Now, if you want to do 2X, do twice as many appointments. Cool. That's there you exactly go, right? right. <laughs> yeah. I like so, that math. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I always, that blew me away when I worked at uh, Cutco Cutlery as an 18 year old. And the, the story is that I went, to my first semester of college. I was paying for school myself. College was way more expensive than I thought it was going to be. I came back, I didn't have gas in the tank to drive home. And I had a reorder from someone that over summer that said, hey, I wanna get a Christmas gift for my, you know, my daughter. That reorder commission check of $120 got me home. I barely made it. And then I went into my office and said, hey, I remember that over summer, you, Mr. Manager, told me that if I ever needed to make a certain amount of money in a certain amount of time to come to you and you would help me break it down, I need $3,000 in 30 days before I go back to school. You know, nowadays doesn't seem like a lot. Back when I'm 18 turning 19, that's gargantuan, right? Like that's what kids make in the summer and I'm trying yeah. to make it in 30 days. And so he very calmly said, awesome, let's go. He, he walked me to a piece of paper and he said, your current commission level is 15%, right? And then at this level of, of sales, you'll break into 20% so that 20% of every sale you'll make back in commission. And then here's where you hit 25%. So he tiered it out. And, and then he said, based on this and then Cutco's average numbers of call to appointment ratio, you're going to need to make this many phone calls. If you make that many phone calls in the month, which broke down to like 27 phone calls a day, it wasn't even a lot. But he said, if you make that many phone calls in 30 days, okay. you'll make that amount of money. And that was just like mind blowing to me that it could be that mathematic, right? It, and it could be that cut and dry. And sure enough, I made the phone calls and I made the money. So then I had conviction to this process. And now, you know, 10 years later, I'm applying that to my business today. So I think it's a really key thing to take away is focus on those leading actions, those leading indicators, phone calls, appointments you know, whatever it is for you. And uh, that's why also, shameless plug, I have a free download. It's called the Ultimate Goal Real Estate Goal Setting Framework. And we provide that for free online. You can download it. And basically, you just put in your annual goal and it'll break it down to the number of appointments, phone calls, open houses that you need in order to achieve that goal. So that's uh, pretty in line with exactly what we're talking about. That's great. See, well, and now you document that process and you hire five more agents. They're doing exactly the same thing, you know, under your umbrella and away you go. There you go. So when you're thinking about 
different aspects of your business and what you have going on, what do you use as a process to evaluate how to say no to things? You know, is there anything there where if you get some type of new offer, whether it be a new deal or a new marketing company trying to pitch you or a new, you know, shiny object that you're like, oh, you want to be distracted by it because that's, I think, human nature. You know, what's your process for saying, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on this. Well, I have to say that's an area I struggle a little bit, you know. Most people do. Shiny object, you know, squirrel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I'd say that the thing that's helped me the most is really defining what we're looking for. So my partner and I sat down and we brainstormed, what exactly are we looking for? What's the perfect property for us? Mm. And so we decided we want to buy hotels that are built between 75 and 2000, 85 doors and up, interior corridor, not excessive deferred maintenance in an MSA of 100,000 or more. So that's our criteria. So if anything comes that doesn't fit that criteria, out the door. Now, obviously, I just told you we were looking at one that's been gutted to the studs and it's in North Carolina, (laughs) whatever. Right. So we're not totally following our rule, but that's helped me a lot because we get so many deals coming our way. You have to have something to kind of thin the herd so you even know which ones to look at. That's interesting because I've heard that the most important thing in, I mean, in commercial real estate and investor type of real estate mainly is finding the deal. Like that's always the the toughest thing The you know, and you're saying that there's this like massive abundance of deals coming through that you guys are, you know, sometimes like weeding through or saying no to. So is that all coming from that broker network and the, you know, the brokers that you've, you've been in touch with? It's coming from brokers, but really there's just a ton out on loop now. I mean, right now, you know, distressed hotels are literally a dime a dozen. They're wow. they're everywhere. Well, there you go. It's a, a place of opportunity for uh, anyone else out there. You know, not to create too much competition for Ron here and his team, but he's looking for a very specific type, right? He mentioned those yeah. metrics. If you're cool. okay with taking on different types, what maybe newer, right? Maybe after 2000 that he's not targeting or maybe the ones that are, you don't care about deferred maintenance. Like you'll put a million dollars into it or whatever. Yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And you said LoopNet? Yeah. LoopNet. It's just a, a free service. It, it's actually the free version of CoStar, which is where okay. they list commercial real estate. Got it. All right. Well, we, I like it. We got the best leads from the brokers. As I say, we started out looking at ones on LoopNet, just anything we found that looked halfway interesting, called the broker, started talking to them, let them know what we're interested in. It seems like every one of them had a pocket listing that, you know, hadn't come out yet that, you know, it was better than the stuff we found online. So I think it really is the the broker network is the key, but there's mm. lots of them out there. But, mm. you, but you're right. I mean, and we're focused in the Midwest. So we're only looking at stuff within a 12 hour drive in Minneapolis, you know, because <laughs> we want to get our processes honed and our, our systems all humming before we decide to leverage outside of that area. Right. That makes sense for sure. And what you said about you putting in the footwork initially, which then attracted the attention, I think that's also key, right? You know, my listeners for this podcast are established, but if they have thought about maybe getting into a different vertical or or starting a new thing, just putting that energy out there, all of a sudden you're having conversations with other brokers and then boom, they're calling you, right? They have a pocket listing or a deal that came off across their desk and because you called them last week for the first time and made the connection, 
now you're the first person they call back when they have that deal. And that's just how things happen. So I, I do think it's so key to get off the starting block. Like I'm definitely one who's, what is it? Ready, fire, aim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done that a few times. You yeah. often shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> it can happen. But at the same time, you can kind of jump off and build the plane while you're falling. And uh, that's been my experience is like, you go put that energy out there with sincere heart and good intentions, and you're, you're willing to work hard and do the right thing. And oftentimes, I haven't experienced a failure in doing that, that crushed me, right? Every failure was a learning experience, I was able to recover from it. And then boom, all of a sudden, because I put energy into that direction, it just like manifested itself. I find that pretty interesting. So I like how you just, you had a clear intention. You just started making phone calls and did it. Yeah. Well, Colin Powell, I don't know if you remember, he was the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for a while. Well, he wrote a book. And one of the things he said in his book that I thought was very good, he said, if you're 60% certain that you're doing the right thing, you should act. Because if you wait till you're 80% certain, the opportunity will probably have passed you by. Mm, interesting. I haven't heard that quote, but I like that. Hey, what are one to three books that you have read, which have greatly influenced your life or career? Books. Well, now, unfortunately, I don't read as much now as I, as I was or I should be. But probably the one I, I liked the best is The Richest Man in Babylon. I thought that mm. was really well done. I mean, it's old, but it, it really, I think, speaks to the, you know, sort of the underlying facts of economics, and kind of how things works. I, I thought that was a really good book. It's, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's kind of like parables. It's not, it's not really easy reading, but it's, it's, I thought it was very, very good. Awesome. No, I'm not familiar with it. Of course, everybody's read Rich, Rich yeah. Dad, Poor Dad. Is that what uh, you're going to say? Yeah, of course. I said everybody who's read that one or the E-Myth. That was another one I thought was pretty good. You know, had something hmm. to offer. Yeah, no, that, that's great. I like to ask that question to give our listeners some additional reading resources and then you know, sometimes I come across a great book from that. So Richest Man in Babylon, I'll have to check sure. that out. Yeah, well, it's, it's, is, it's a pretty short read. So yeah. Last question. I mean, is there something that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier? You know, not really. Actually, I thought you asked really good questions. You know, I hope I gave you decent answers. Sometimes I get <laughs> off track. But. No, absolutely. I think this was a unique interview that our viewers will appreciate because it touched on not only a unique commercial real estate opportunity, which a lot of people aren't thinking about, but it also touched then on processes and the lean thinking because a lot of brokerages out there, they've gotten to a point where you know they're spending 60000 a month in marketing and they have this payroll and this and that and all these things. And you just know, you just know that there's so much fat that could be trimmed and so many processes that could be honed to get that running smoother, right? So that's what I think is the biggest takeaway from this particular podcast is, you know, if you yeah. feel like you could probably be generating more revenue per employee, which is a metric that lean startups or it's a concept I think from scaling up, how much revenue do you want to have per employee? Not only your agents, if you're a broker, but also your admin and all the people in your office. Like if you want a million dollars in revenue per employee and you have 10 employees and you're not at 10 million, I guess that's not even a lot. If you want 10 million per, because <laughs> I know a lot of 10, <laughs> 10 person teams that are doing 100, like 100 million. If your goal is 10 million per person in your organization, well, 
don't stop until you're there, right? Start to look at how you can improve efficiency, let someone go. If it's the right time to let somebody go and they're just dead weight, bring a new person in that could potentially then upgrade everything else, focus on those processes. I think it was a, it was a great interview. So I appreciate you being on here, Ron. And uh, one more time. One more thing I'd like to say. I just, you made me think of it as a book called Good oh, yeah. to Great. Oh yeah, so that's, that, that's that, that one has been suggested, and I, I appreciate the uh, the suggestion from you as well. Good to great. All right, so check out good to great. And anybody who's interested in hotels, please go out how, and check out firstfloorequity.com. Yeah, how can they get in touch with you? Just uh, go to the website. That's probably the easiest way. Firstfloorequity.com, or you can send me an email, Ron at firstfloorequity.com. Love to talk to anybody who's interested in hotels or interested in investing in commercial real estate or just want to chat. Awesome. And once again, your position in that is not the broker. Your position in that is kind of putting together the deal, securing the capital, right? Is the, am, am I positioning you in the right way so that people know why they would yeah, be calling yeah. you? Yeah. Well, my partner and I, I'm really more the acquisition guy. So okay. I do most of the financial analysis and looking at the deals, that sort of thing. He's really on the uh, greasing the capital and working with the SEC attorneys and doing that side of it. Got it. And then together okay. we sort of manage them, sort of a shared responsibility. So, but cool. again, if you got any any questions, you know, if I can't answer them, my partner David can, or we know people who can. So, please feel free to reach out. Awesome, Ron Holiday, everyone. Once again, thank you so much for being here, and uh, I know that a lot of people out there are going to get some value from this that they had no idea. Right? I think it was unique interview, and I appreciate it. So, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You got it. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free Ultimate Real Estate Goal Setting Framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.